If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. Today we're going to bring John and McLean again, and he's going to talk to us about developing the canter. Okay, so we've been talking to him about young horses, bringing on young horses, doing a lot of jumping cross country. And now we're going to talk about developing the canter and ask him the relationship between developing the canter and jumping. But before we do that, I'd just like to remind you that today's chat's been brought to you by International Horse College. Their vision's to have a world where people safely appreciate, respect and enjoy their horses and the horses appreciate, respect and enjoy their people. Have a look now at internationalhorsecollege.com, registered training organisation 31352. Now, John, are we going to talk about developing the canter today? Is that right? That's right, Glennis. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. Now, John, the question I'm sure is going to be, because we've been talking and we, and we did start off like with a fold and we've gone right through, and I think we're up to about number 22 now, We've covered quite a lot of ground, but we've been talking about jumping, cross-country, walking the course, everything else. How important is it, the relationship between developing the canter and jumping? Um, it's a big question, Glennis, but it's a pretty easy question, but it's a very important one to ask, and that's because out of all the years that I've been riding different horses for different people, selecting my own, breeding my own, um, and these are horses from the yearling sales, thoroughbreds or warm bloods or whatever they are, it's made me realise that the thing that's important to me mostly is not the colour of the horse, not the breed of the horse, it's actually how well it canters. And the reason that I say that is because as you go up the grades, especially at FEI, you spend so much of your time at canter. You do all your cross-country at canter. You do all your show jumping at canter and a fair proportion of your high-level work um, in the dressage is also done at canter. So without adjustability and without the horse being able to understand what you want him to do, how many strides you would like him to do between a fence, or how collected you would like the canter in the dressage, then it makes it really difficult because if the horse doesn't naturally canter, then you're going to have to create it. And I've had to do that on a couple of horses and it takes a very long time. It's taken me pretty much two years of practicing developing the canter to the point where it's acceptable enough to be able to be competitive on an FEI level at eventing even, and that's not even FEI dressage. So, you know, we have to be really mindful of the fact that if the horse canters naturally, most of your work is already done because he loves cantering, whereas if you've got a standard bread, for example, that is pretty much been selected for training to uh, give you a diagonal gait or a, or a lateral gait, whatever it is, but it's still trot, um, then if the horse doesn't have a natural canter, it will want it to default to its easiest one. And that makes training much more frustrating for the, for the rider and for the trainer, which is the same person. Okay, now you talked about the adjustability of the canter. What about the walk and trot? How much work do we need to do about the adjustability and the walk and trot before we worry about the canter? I mean, in terms of length and tempo. Yeah, well, that's right. If we talk about the walk and the trot, 
and we can get those basic control mechanisms in place. And the basic control mechanisms are, and the underlying theme is always going to be the self-carriage state. In other words, the horse is doing it by himself. You don't have to maintain it. We we all know that. That being able to do that and demonstrate that at walk and being able to demonstrate that at trot is really the perfect leading edge into then saying, let's do it at canter now, especially for the horses that don't naturally do it. So, and I say this all the time, and I, I can I can pick it straight away, is that when I go and give a lesson, and you would see the same thing, is that a person all of a sudden doesn't look that comfortable at walk or doesn't look that comfortable at trot, but all of a sudden there's harmony at canter, and you can tell that they just canter. And the reason is, is because the horse has a good canter or the rider likes cantering and they've developed a good canter out of it. So, you know, the most important part here is making sure that the horse understands the differences in the rain signals and the leg signals, especially the rain signals, between saying, okay, I would like a downward transition, in which case on a young horse we would use both reins and then ultimately we would like to be able to get it to a, a more of a classical cue where the body actually says, no, now I want you to come down a gate, and we can do it with our body and our body signals. Then the horse will come back down from trot to walk, for example. Getting those in place before we canter is really the template for being able to get them to understand it in canter. So those response to the signals or the aids, obviously that needs to be the signals or the aids to go into canter are important before we worry about making changes to that gate. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Exactly. So, you know, understanding and, and um, understand, get all us trying to understand whether the horse understands, whether he or she understands that the signals for going down a gate and the upper gate are actually different to shortening. Because when you start to shorten and the horse defaults into trot, then he actually doesn't understand the question. So you have to ask yourself, what is it I'm doing with my body and my signals that have made him think that I should be going, uh, that I should be shortening the canter when in fact the horse says, no, I'm just going to drop out and I'm going to go into trot. So, you know, the horse tells you everything. That's, that's really the essence of your and my conversation for this entire period it has been centred around whether the horse actually understands the question. Yes, yeah, yeah. Now, now we talk about canter, okay, and we talk about the left and right lead. So say the horse is trained, he's going well, left lead, understanding the aids or the signals, right lead, understanding the aids or the signals. How do we actually know then? You know, because you talked about if it's the natural inclination, if they prefer to do the canter or the trot, what are we looking for once we've got the horse so that they're accepting the aids, they're going left canter, right canter, how do we know if they prefer the canter or prefer the trot or what their favourite gait is? <laughs> well, if we go all the way back, I can't remember what series it was, but it was where we were assessing a horse and the horse was loose in the paddock and we were just looking at the horse, yeah. And if you have a look at what he does um, when he's in, not flight mode, but he's a little bit aroused and he's got his tail up a little bit and he's 
wandering around, does he go into extended trot or does he go into canter? And usually you can tell by looking at the horse, but probably the most, the easiest way for most people to realise it, does the canter feel really comfortable and does he necessarily need to go faster into the canter? Because if he has to go faster, and I'm talking about ground speed here, speed across the ground, if he has to go faster across the ground in order to canter, canter is not his natural gait. But if he can canter pretty much from walk, and also he can do it from trot, but he can also lengthen and he can shorten naturally, then under saddle, that's exactly what he'll do. Okay, okay. But what if it's not their natural gait? You know, and you talked earlier about standard breads or standees. How can we ensure that adjustment then? And as you said before, you shorten the canter and they break into trot. What are we really looking at there to do with our training if they, that canter is not the natural pace? If canter isn't the natural pace, and the standard breads are uh, the first uh, breed of horse that comes to mind, but any horse that doesn't practice cantering a lot, that won't be a preferred option for them. So in other words, if they don't practice it, they don't get good at it. They're like everything in life, isn't it? So for the standard breads, probably the most important thing is to really try and practice cantering and don't even worry about what lead they give you and do it in straight lines and get them quite comfortable in practicing that canter for periods of time so that then that becomes more available than it did before because now you've practiced it more. So the idea is to practice it more and then we can start to say, now I'd like the left lead and I would like uh, the right lead and probably the left lead will be the most available mostly for most horses to left lead. And we might say, okay, that's practicing on the left lead, that's good. And then for those horses that don't naturally want to canter, I'll canter them on the left lead and I'll canter them for a minute or two on the left lead. And so that lead is a little bit tired now. So the next thing that will happen is that when I come back to trot and then I'll go on to the right rein, making sure that my bend and flexion is appropriate in the direction and that my self-carriage of my trot is good. And then I'll say, now, you don't have to count on your left lead anymore because now your near four is quite tired. But now pick up your right front leg and do that. And that works quite well for the horses that haven't cantered a lot. And if they have cantered a lot, it's primarily been on the left lead. So the reason that horses do flying changes is because they're trying to rest their leading leg. That's the only reason the horses do uh, their leading leg in front and back. So they're trying to rest their leading leg behind and in front. So if you can make that leading leg, which is the primary weight-bearing points for the horse, from the stance, uh, from the flight phase into the stance phase, then we start to realise that now that those legs are a little bit tired, they're more inclined to pick up the other lead. Yes, yeah, you see it sometimes at the end of a race or the end of a three-day event or something, the horse is changing and, you know, just resting. Yeah. 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 You know, if we want to switch from canter to trot, a couple of tips there, you know, just making sure that we can switch off the canter and go into trot. What tips have you got there? Okay. Switching off the canter is something that people don't look at. They always talk about the upward transition and how important it is to make it nice and crisp and clean and have jump in it, all the rest of it. And that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. But we also need to make sure that the downward transition has good definition because we are marked in dressage 
just as important as that. And from a training point of view, I need to know that I can switch it off as well as I switched it on. What is the point of being able to switch on a light bulb and you can't switch it off? So some horses are like that. They'll canter and then you'll say, oh, excuse me, I'd like to trot, and they canter shorter and shorter and shorter, and you nearly just your speed across the ground is nearly at walk, and then they trot, which is no use to you because now you should be in walk. You completely skipped a pace. So <laughs> being able to switch it off is really important, and that comes down to the clarity of the aid. The clarity of the aid is the leg position and making sure that your leg position from an from a, uh, equitation point of view, inside leg on the girth, outside leg back, making sure that you don't end up with both your legs on the girth because that should mean go so that when you slide your outside leg forward and then you apply rain pressure or you use your body, then you use your rein, that the horse can clearly understand what the request is because if you slide your outside leg back, slide it forward to the girth and apply your rein, that should mean trot. And if it doesn't, that means that when you start doing flying changes, you won't be able to do temper changes because you won't be able to switch off the leading leg. That makes sense. That makes sense. Stop. I need to interrupt this chat for a hot-off-the-press notification. That is, that the latest version of the book, 101 Careers in the Horse Industry, is now available, and the best news is that it's a free download. So if you work in the horse industry, if you have a plan to work in the horse industry and have a career in the horse industry, or if you know someone who plans to have a career in this fabulous industry, then this is an essential book for you to read now and then keep as a reference as you progress through your career. With over 100 jobs to choose from, you'll probably find at least one that you'd happily do without being paid. So simply go to internationalhorsecollege.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page and click on the 101 careers in the horse industry button to receive your free career book. Imagine, maybe one day you could be a guest on Horse Chats. Now, I suppose we've got to be careful to understand the difference with the rein signals as well. You know, we want the horse to shorten and, and then they do a transition or we want the horse to do a downwards transition and then they shorten. So I suppose it goes back to horses understanding the question. What can you tell us about the rein signals? Yeah, and, and look, Glenis, I think you and I have covered this topic quite a few times before. The reins are notoriously complex items, and we we need to look carefully at what we do with the reins to make sure that they're not complex to the horse, and they don't need to be complex to the horse. So for me, right rein means turn right, left rein means turn left. Both reins mean downward transition or halt or in the beginning stages of rein back, I'll just use both reins and no leg signal, of course, as we talked about in the previous episode. But we also then, as we progress in the horse's education, that those things now start, we start to split hairs a little bit and say, now when I actually lift my hand, it doesn't mean to trot and it doesn't mean to do anything else but to shorten your stride length. So when I say raise the rein, I'm talking about raising both reins, and you may have to raise them six inches at the start. You raise them sufficiently to get a change. It doesn't matter. But the point is that the horse has to try to understand that raising the rein doesn't mean slow, doesn't mean change your tempo. It simply means to shorten your gait. All we're trying to do here is change the center of balance of the horse 
so it's a little higher and a little further back, so he sits on his haunches just a little bit more. And if you look at the centre of balance of a collected horse compared to a horse that is just allowed to go um, in its normal uh, cantering state, the difference in the centre of gravity points is very minuscule, but for the rider it is graphic. It is completely graphic, especially for the horses that have learned to canter so collectedly that they can almost, can I say, from a speed across the ground point of view, and I've mentioned this a few times, they can now overlap their speed across the ground in canter all the way through trot, down to walk, and they're still in canter. And that's what collection's all about, being able to make sure we can overlap it. So that's why it's really important for the horse to understand that reins up, not shortening the neck, but really changing the centre of balance just by simply raising the pole of the horse. That's all we're doing. That is the only thing we're doing. And then softening the hand and saying, now training him to keep his pole there. So we're we're now striving for the self-carriage state of the pole because it's a new thing. So we'll have to train the self-carriage state of that as well. And then he will stay there. So now he will stay a little bit shorter. And then we're able to say, oh, good boy, you did that for three or four strides. Good boy. Soften your hand, leg on. Now go longer. That was really good. And then give him a big scratch and tell him he was a good boy. And and, and um, it doesn't take long. Uh, it's a very, very enlightening thing. This is one of my favorite tasks in, in, in training dressage horses to do is, is the shortening and lengthening exercises nearly every time. Not every time, I shouldn't say that, but a lot of times the horses think that raising the pole means downward transition. And that's because we've blurred that whole thing between the downward transition and the raising through shortening the neck. And there's no place to shorten the neck. Why would we want to shorten the neck? The neck is fine as it is. All we want to do is change the centre of gravity. That's all we've got to do. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm just going to go back, Jonna, just to clear something up. So for a horse that's canned is not their natural pace, okay, and you had talked about them sort of cantering longer, um, or if you want to get the right lead, you canter longer on the left, so they're a little tired, they might go right. What can we do then if we want them to just come back to a tempo that they can do? Do we go longer? How can we um, play around with the canter if it's not their natural pace? Is there any tips there? This is probably one of the hardest things to do, Glennis, is on a horse that is um, cantering is not their natural pace. It's to be, be able to develop a collectible canter. And generally speaking, for a horse that hasn't done much of it, i.e. a standard bread, or a horse that his favourite pace is trotting, and he does medium trot and extended trot perfectly well, but his cantering is quite fast, then it, it generally takes you about two years to get it to the point, um, practising whenever you can. And that seems like a long time, but it's so worthwhile because it all, if you, you obviously know as a five-year-old or as a four-year-old, this horse's canter is not exactly what it wants. So you've got all the way right up to FBI to do that, and the horse is then going to be seven, so you've got plenty of time. However, in doing this, it means that what we have to do is find out what the horse can canter at. And let's say if he can canter at, and I'll just do an arbitrary speed here, let's say if he can canter at 27 miles an hour. Okay. So what we don't want to do right now is do anything with the reins at 27 miles an hour because then you'll trot and you're just going to extend the trot. So what we'll do is that we'll push him a little bit faster and longer and allow him with the rein to get longer up to maybe 30 miles an hour. I'm, I'm showing my age here. I should be talking in kilometres. But anyway, is that um, 
And then I'll bring him back by raising my rein and saying, now come back to 27. So I'll come back to what he can do. And then he starts to understand that as soon as he gets to 27, the rein raising um, doesn't persist anymore and that he can stay at 27 and everything is fine. So now he's starting to develop the, the understanding of my connection that is now more of an up connection than it is on a connection with both the reins and coming back towards my torso. Yeah. Going back, because we just said it's not their natural pace and comparing them, horses are canton naturally, right? And I know that's your favourite type of horse. What about if you shorten, shorten, prepare to trot, prepare to trot, prepare, and they're cantering at walk speed, you know, you've sort of, what can we do there to say switch off the canter and you've actually got to trot? Yes, and now we've got the opposite problem. I've got a horse that actually can't switch it off. And, and that happens often with the horses that have been very well schooled in dressage. You know, they might be medium advanced or beyond horses, and they can't, they can't switch off the trot. And if we look at the signals that are applied to ask for trot, for example, when you ask for trot, what does the outside leg do? Does it come forward enough? And generally speaking, these horses, and now cantering so well that the riders, if I, can I talk about leg split, which is actually whether the uh, rider's legs are really parallel to the girth or not, and they are at the same distance from the girth with your left leg and your right leg. As the horse canters, we can become a little bit lazy with our left leg, so we move it forward. And so then how are you going to turn the trot off? You can't turn it off because now you've said that Legs together on the girth mean trot and they mean canter. And these are the sorts of horses that when you do an upward transition, they do a little head bob into the upward transition because the first millisecond of the upward transition is nearly always canter because they don't know whether they should be trotting or cantering. So just going back then, the rain aid for shortening, it should be raising the pole, and, and but you said, you know, we don't want the horse to come shorter in the neck. We just want to make that centre of gravity come slightly higher and a little further back. Yeah, that's right. And the only thing I'd add to that, Glenn, is once we basically shape that and he understands that, then we can put a more subtle uh, thing into uh, a more of a postural cue with our upper body. So when we want to go forward, we lighten our seat and our shoulders go forward and our hands soften and our, uh, our, our leg is applied or our legs are applied to say, okay, now go longer, and he understands that. That's great. And then as you come back, if you actually make your upper body come back and then you use your rein aid, then ultimately the horse will understand that when your upper body comes back and your seat starts to deepen and your centre of gravity starts to move back, that means that he should start to give you a little bit more air in the front end in the in the uh, transition to shortening, which is exactly what we're after. We don't want a horse that's on the forehand. We need exactly the opposite. Okay. Okay. So if that's for shortening, we've got for the longer strides then, and thinking the upper body of the rider, that the rider can facilitate that then for lightening their seat, going slightly forward with a softer hand. Is that right? Because that's the opposite then to shortening. Yeah. Yeah, okay, makes it very clear aids, yeah. That's right, it makes it really clear, but if you practice this all the time as a rider and you make sure that when you go forward, you lighten your seat and you put your hands forward, you might not do this in competition, it doesn't matter, but we're not talking about competition, we're talking about training. Um, is it making this really clear so that you're, the very first signal that your horse gets from you is your upper, upper body changes and then your hand changes for lengthening and also for shortening 
you'll understand that this is a precursor to what the task is. This is this is not rocket science. It's so easy to understand. But we have to practice being able to be stable enough in the saddle as a rider to be able to ex- uh, execute those manoeuvres with their upper body, followed by hand for shortening and for lengthening. Because if we're haphazard with our body, we'll be haphazard with our hand, and these tasks are never going to be achievable for an unstable rider. Okay, and a couple of notes that I've got are just we've um, we've got to keep lightness to the aid because you know you always talk about that to keep the self carriage. If we don't have the lightness as an aid, then we're not going to have the self carriage. Yeah, and also too, just to do with the whether the horse is a naturally cantering horse or not. So for a jumping horse, you really would you you know I mean any horse so long as they're sound, I suppose can physically jump. But if you're looking at an FEI horse, you're looking at at a horse with a bit of talent, you want them to be naturally cantering. Well, the, well that's, that's exactly right. So when we, start, when we start doing flying changes, Glenis, and we start doing tempi changes or we start doing um, half-pass or anything that involves the canter itself that in, uh, it has to uh, be judged on the fact of how engaged its hindquarter is and how in self-carriage it is. In, in other words, the ease of the movement uh, the whole thing is going to be centred upon the self-carriage state, and that is nearly always the very first fatality in um, when the horse doesn't understand the question or doesn't know how to answer the question because the horse is now heavy and because he doesn't understand the question. So the first thing you forego is the self-carriage state. And it, it is probably... Um, it's not saying it's irretrievable. Of course it's not, but it tells us something important, saying, yes, he's basically got the idea but my self-carriage is, uh, is, is lost for a moment. I need to make sure that I can carry out this manoeuvre and retrieve the lightness of the signal and that it's maintained by him. I don't have to constantly maintain it. Just something that we didn't talk about so much, but thinking along the lines of cross-country. Now, I think it said at some stage that if you're going an upward slope, that helps practice the horse to load the hind quarter. You know, if, the, if you're sort of cantering just a nice upward slope, does that help, not help? Yeah, that helps a lot. But it helps a lot. And the other thing that it does do as well, Glennis, is that it helps build the muscles that are designed to help lift the horse because we're now putting it on a slight incline. So all of a sudden, you know, our uh, our metabolic rate is going to be increased because we're going an uphill slope, but we won't talk about that. Well, let's talk about the benefits of going up a hill is that now that we've rotated the horse pretty much artificially up onto its hindquarter of what we want him to do on the flat. So he can actually demonstrate this more easily by going up a hill. And nearly always, horses tend to want to canter up a hill. It is the most powerful gate to negotiate a hill. So they tend to want to canter up a hill, and then we can put that to our advantage by saying, okay, now see if you can canter a little bit slower up the hill. Yep, good boy, you can. And that will help load his hindquarter and get all the, get all the um, structures uh, a little bit more accustomed to the physical state that we're going to do when we're on level ground. Yeah. And I know from your previous training, you know, you try not to make them long sessions, but break them into bite-sized pieces and then just keep reviewing. And I suppose, you know, when you're first warming up at the start of the session, that just tells you how successful or how the horse understood that your previous session was. Exactly. And the session that we're doing right now, this minute, 
is a pure reflection of what we did last time. Unless there are extraneous circumstances like wind and rain and dogs and cats and all the rest of the environmental things are going to happen. But let's say everything's equal. It's being written approximately the same time of the day. Nothing's really changed. There's no huge hormonal issues happening here or there's no exterior circumstances beyond my control that I know of. Um, this is a fairly good measure of what he actually understood yesterday or the day before or three days prior. So the next time you go into it is a very good window as to how effective or not your previous session was, which should then tell you what you are doing for that day, not what you've written down in your diary or not what you think is going through your head. Because the crazy thing about horses, they make the best lives of all of us. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, thinking about the chat today has been about developing the canter. We've got the shortening, the lengthening, and the adjustability for the collected work. And that's also good for the dressage, the show jumping, the cross country. So we're really, we're training the canter for all three. Yeah, we are. And even when we talk about, like, for example, I'll throw something left field here. Let's say, for example, all of a sudden somebody says to me, oh, John, I've got a horse that's a standard bread and I would like to barrel race it. Okay, well, we won't be doing that at trot. We'll be definitely doing it at a canter. So I'd be looking at being able to develop a canter and being able to make sure we've got the appropriate leads, number one, and then develop the adjustability so that when I go into all those barrels, I can sit back, the horse will shorten, I can take a very tight line around the barrel because now I've got to collect a canter, whereas if I've got a huge amount of speed across the ground, I will leave a very wide berth around the left side of my barrel and that will cost me time. So that will be not uh, not a competitive way to go around a barrel. So, you know, it's applicable to everything, to cutting horse, uh, to, to horses that uh, cut cattle, to everything that we do. Uh, everything we do involves adjustability. I think it's exactly the same as our car, you know, our cars and our horses and our, um, everything that we want to do with our animals relies on degree of adjustability that we've got because that equals a well-trained horse. Yeah, and a well-trained horse is a safe horse. I think that's a very good saying. You know, you're looking for a safe horse when you're looking for a well-trained horse. Yeah. Yeah, that that should be a T-shirt. A well-trained horse is a safe horse. Yeah, exactly. I think sometimes people get just quiet, doughy, stubborn horses and think they're quiet, but they're not quiet. The the well-trained horses are the quiet horses. They're the ones that make people like myself go, well, what is underneath when I dig? And I think it's a bit like everything is, you know, you get you get, have to be a little wary about the horses. that, um, On the outside, yes, they all look nice and quiet, but they're not that adjustable and um, things aren't always that predictable. So I wonder how it goes when things don't go well because, you know, as we all know, the life with horses is often about how well we cope and they cope with unpredictability. Yep, yep, yep. Jonna, thank you again. You know, you talk about developing the canter, you've gone right through, and lots of information about developing the canter and specific to developing the canter, but the same traits, the same philosophies throughout all of your training. And Jonna, and I know that you, you work with a wide variety, you know, you know, you talk about a barrel racer and a standard bred and a this and a that, and I think, you know, people need to contact you, Jonna, about their horses. And you're not going to stop at anything. You know, if someone's got a horse that needs training, you're going to say, right, this is exactly what I like. And it's almost like the bigger the challenge, the more you enjoy it, I think. Yes, I do do agree, Glenn. And and look, the variation of horses that I get is really the spice of my life because none of it is boring. No part of it is boring. I mean, 
just uh, it was a yesterday. You know, I had to go and ride a couple of horses that um, in the past have had um, issues about um, showing and rearing and bolting and all these issues. You know, my, my, my days are never dull when it's with horses, and, and I'm fortunate that I have the skills that I've got and the information that I have. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think that the more often we feel as if we're able to ride horses that are a little bit outside our comfort zone but we can get good at it, then we will add to our skill set. And that's really what I've done um, with my life, with all the people around me who provided me with those opportunities. So I'm very fortunate to have that information and also the ability because not everybody has both. So I'm, I'm very fortunate about that. Now, John, your um, contact details are all going to be on horsechats.com. People want to search for John or search for McLean. But the Train to Win Facebook page is probably the best way to contact you. Is that right? Yeah, that's the best way. Or the other one is um, just send me an email at johnmcclain at gmail.com. Um, that, that'll work as well. So either way, and I think that on my Facebook page, I've even left my phone number up there, so just send me a text or whatever. Perfect. Okay, and if you've missed those details, just go to horsechats.com and search for one of John's chats. And as I said, he's up to 22, I think. So, you know, just any of the chats have all got John's contact details there. John, thank you again for coming on. Thanks for your time and uh, look forward to catching up with the next exciting episode soon. No worries, Glennis. This has been good and it's probably a really important time for a lot of people to have these sorts of resources because they can't go anywhere. Yes, exactly, exactly. Okay, Jonna, I'll chat to you next month. I look forward to it. Thanks, Glennis. Okay, bye. Bye. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government-accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below.